Good morning. Good to be here with you today. The staff and I took a poll. We realized you guys watch too much TV, so we didn't bring it out today. We figured that was okay. <clears throat> no, as Wendy was saying, we've got some technology issues, technological issues. Uh, one of the interesting ones is that, you know, I probably looked down at this TV and that one, and I just see a slide ahead, so I, I know where I'm going. But I also use that TV as a clock, and there's no clock there, which means I can go as long as I want today, which is great. I know I am wearing a watch, and I did bring a phone up here. Don't worry. I'm not going to go that long. So we're in the series called Next. Um, if you watch that bumper video, it's kind of this idea is that if you saw what your future looked like and you knew what that was going to look like, would that influence you in the present? Would, would you do something different? Would you change? Would you simply believe that that is how it's going to go and you have you know, no... Um, a viewpoint or anything you can change uh, that would change that. And so what we've hopefully tried to do in this series is kind of a, a complex series. This is one of the more complex series that I've done in our Bible in a Year series. If you're just joining us, one, my name is Kyle. Good to meet, good to meet you. But we started a Bible in a Year series, and we started after Easter last year, and we're going until May of next year. And by the time we get to the end of December, we will be out of the Old Testament, and we will start the New Testament. And I have a three-month series that I'm going to do early next year that I can't wait to tell you about, but I'm going to wait to tell you about it. You're going to have to wait a little bit longer. It's going to be really good. We, we really enjoy it. Uh, but today we're doing this series called Next, and we're, we're going over four books in the Bible. We're going over the major prophets, essentially. And we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to help you build your faith by knowing the future. Build your faith by knowing the future. And last week, we did week one, we talked about the future leader. We talked about how the, the future leader from Isaiah would be a leader that would not only be for the people at the time, but would be for people of all time. And so we talked about how Jesus, the Messiah, has always been the leader, but someday he will be your future leader. If you want to know a little bit more about that, you can watch on our app or on the YouTube page, you can do that. Today, I want to talk about the future nation, the future nation. Now, this is a bit of a challenging message. It was challenging for me to research Research, and to talk about. Um, and it's also hard because most people, most people would probably think about their own life. There are the things that are immediately in front of them. You probably think about your job, your health. You probably think about your kids. You probably think about your family. You might think about your neighbors. And occasionally as you watch the news and you look around and kind of get, get, get your head up from your everyday life and you think about people who are farther away. Most people, most people might not think nationally unless it's their own country. And they may not think, of another nation. Now, one of the challenges is every once in a while, there's conflict in the world that makes us think differently about our everyday lives because the conflict we either think could come to our home or it could affect the people that we know and love. We just celebrated veterans and thank you so much for your service. This makes us think about it. Are our people going to go over to another nation? And so we're talking about that. And, you know, I don't watch a ton of news just because I don't watch TV. I'm, a, I'm more of a reader and a listener of podcasts and stuff like that. But I did perk my ears up, you know, about a month ago or so when there was a conflict in Israel. And what, this ha what happens is when there is a, a conflict, especially about a land that is talked about in the Bible, people's ears tend to perk up. And sometimes people tend to ask questions. I've had people in the lobby ask me about Israel. What is it talked about in the Bible? Do you know what the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is? How, how does it um, kind of 
help us in our view of them and of God. What are the consequences? And I'm not a historian in terms of that area, and so I highly recommend that you do your own research. But what we are going to talk about is we're going to, we're going to talk about the nation of Israel, the nation of America, and all nations. And what we're going to try to do here is we're going to do a little bit of biblical prophecy. And we introed that last week. Now, biblical prophecy can make people get really weird really quickly. And first of all, sometimes people are so into it is that they only read those parts of scripture, they're only interested in the future, and they miss the past and the present. And then there's some stuff that you go, man, I don't understand that. I don't even flip to the book of Revelation. There's some weird stuff going on there, and I don't understand it, and I just live in the present. So biblical prophecy can be kind of interesting. We talked about how biblical prophecy is actually three viewpoints, is that it's God's view of the way things are, God's view of the way things could be, and how his view of the way things will be. It encompasses all those three things, God's view of the way things are, could be, and will be. And prophecy can be kind of challenging because sometimes we want to know the future. Sometimes we wish we could know a little bit more. Some things are harder to talk about in the future, like, hey, will my relative be in heaven? Will I be in heaven? That may be a really challenging question um, to talk about. You know, some of the easier ones, will the Raiders have a winning season? No, absolutely not. (laughs) Super easy. You don't even have to go to the Bible for that one. You just go, what team is that? Absolutely not. You guys do play the Jets today, so you get kind of a chance, I guess. And I I have been harsh to Raiders fans for a little while. And I'm going to encourage you in two weeks. Okay, so I want you to come back in two weeks. I know it's Thanksgiving Day weekend. I'm going to encourage you. Don't worry. It'll be great. I'm excited about it. But you got to wait for two weeks for that. So biblical prophecy, you know, we, we want to maybe know what's in the future. Maybe some of us don't want to know. But what the Old Testament prophets tell us is a foreshadowing of things to come and a desire, hopefully, by people to change the possible outcome. And today we're going to talk about that. I want to start off with this big question, is what is God's plan for our nation, for the nation of Israel, and for the nations of the world? So you, you see this conflict, and it brings up these questions, and people go, hey, what is, what is it? How, how is our nation involved in this? Well, will there be a place for us? You know, when you reach back into the back of the Bible in the book of Revelation, it does talk about nations there. It talks about how the tree of life will be healing for the nations, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on in the message. So it's not just like this one smorgasbord of people and land at the end. There is some division. Now, how would you describe a nation? Now, today is not going to be a political type of message. It will contain some politics, and I'll address that a little bit. But as you think about a nation, and again, at the end, we'll figure out how this pertains to you. So it'll be a long story. At the end, we'll we'll make it sure it pertains to you. So a nation is often defined um, by people as this. One of three things. It's a defined geographical border. Defined geographical border. You may be landlocked. You may have water on every side, but it's a defined geological border. And then it's also a shared culture, customs, or government. You may have people who are all from the same country, all from the same place, like South Korea, North Korea, primarily 98% Koreans. And you come to the United States, and we have a melting pot of different nationalities and culture, but we share the same governance. And then the third one is a set of ideological beliefs. And every nation has a set of ideological beliefs. Ours has one as well. So how would God define a nation? Well, he has those same three things, but the way he talks about them, and the way the Bible talks about them is different. It would be a defined geographical area where God is in charge. Now, when God created everything, 
It was all his, and it still is all his. And sometimes as much as we try to push him out of some of our affairs or some of our politics or some of our uh, national interests or some other people's national interests, it still all belongs to him. The idea of a nation is that every nation will bow the knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord someday. That's the direction we're heading. So it's a geographical area, and the geographical area is everything. The second one is it's a shared ultimate governance by God. You know, we have a president and some nations have a prime minister. Some people have a queen or a king. Some people have ambassadors. They have lots of different forms of government and there's an allegiance or maybe a rebellion against that kind of government. But someday the ultimate nation will be God as king over everything and there will be no more rebellion. There will be no more wars and there will be no more infighting. It's that ultimately allegiance will be to God himself. Now, I brought a map of Israel and Judah here. You can bring, put that up there uh, in just a second. Is that the way we're talking about now is we're going to be in the prophet, uh, the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has this geographical region that he's talking. So if you, that blue area right there is called the kingdom of Israel. That, by the time of Jeremiah, has been conquered. The Assyrians conquered that in 700 and something BC. I always forget. And they have already conquered that. So Jeremiah's role when God calls him to be a prophet, is the southern prophets, the kingdom of Judah. You know, prophets in the Bible have the worst jobs. You know, God shows up with a job description, and it's like the worst job description. He's just like, hey, I got this opportunity for you, Jeremiah. He's like, sweet, tell me about it. He's like, well, uh, you're going to go to your nation, the nation that you love, and you have to tell them really hard things, and they're not going to want to listen to you. He's like, all right, not a good start. Your own family is going to try to kill you, and they're going to disown you. I don't really want that. You know, you're also going to be an ambassador to the nations. You're going to have to tell them things that they don't want to hear either. And your own people group, you may be starving at some point. You're not going to have food all the time. Pretty much all the people you know and love and care about are just going to disregard you and push you aside. You're like, wow, what an offer, right? And this is something that the God calls Jeremiah too. So in Jeremiah 1, he, he spells out his job description and God has chosen him. So Jeremiah 1 verse 4 says this, the word of the Lord came to me. So Jeremiah is writing this down. And he says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. So Jeremiah, before he is even born, God has said, I've set you apart for something. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, Jeremiah's primary job will be to a prophet of the nation of Judah, but he will talk about surrounding nations and nations that will come in and conquer them as well. Then it continues on, and it says, verses 9 to 10, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and told me, I have now filled your mouth with my words. You know, Jeremiah does what a lot of prophets in the Bible do, which is always a bad idea, is when God chooses you for something, a lot of the times people in the Bible are like, yeah, I think you got the wrong guy. You're like, I, I don't really go out on weekends. I like to be in at 8 o'clock with my family. Like, I've got this allergy, gluten allergy. I'm not really good with all this sort of stuff. Like, I can't talk. I'm kind of young. And God's like, stop. I have chosen you. And so he fills Jeremiah's mouth with the words that God wants him to say. Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and told me, I have now filled you with my words. See, I have appointed you today over nations and over kingdoms. And he gives him this job description here that is unenviable. He says, to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to demolish, to build and to plant. I mean, this was Jeremiah's task as he was supposed to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to tear 
uh, to build and to plant. I mean, that's essentially what God is asking him to do. It's an unenviable task. Now, the book of Jeremiah is a really big book, but housed within the book of Jeremiah, there are at least four books. I'm going to go over these with you really quickly. And the reason that is I only have time to deal with a small portion of this book. I said last week that each of these books are so massive and all of them kind of overlap in terms of what they talk about. They talk about nations and Messiah and there's judgment, idolatry, kings and kingdoms, future stuff and present stuff. So I tried to pick out one thing that I think would be helpful for everyone to hear. And so this one is about nations, but this, these four books in the book of Jeremiah are as follows. There's prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem. A lot of Jeremiah's time is spent talking about the people who should know better. And this is to be a really good example and maybe a warning to us as Christians. I mean, Jesus would pick this up too. He says, hey, before you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eyes, maybe you should check out the big old plank that's coming out of your eye. Now, big old is not in the Bible. It's a Southern version, in case you're wondering. But it's not that version. And, and Jeremiah helps us understand, too, is that the majority of his book is God coming down to Jeremiah and saying, my people are the ones that I hold accountable first. It did not go well for the nation of Israel. They were idolatrous. They were unfaithful to me. And the Assyrians come in, and they totally wipe them out, and they carry them off. And the same thing is going to happen to the southern tribe of Judah. But now it's the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquer the Assyrians. The Babylonians are going to come down and conquer Judah unless, and Jeremiah's job was to tell them to repent and to come back. But Jeremiah knows. And he, again, he has the unenviable task of knowing what's going to happen because he is supposed to go to the nation of Judah and say, hey, you can turn back, but he knows because God is going to tell him, hey, they're not going to repent. You can give them the message and you should. You should give them the option, but they will not repent. They will be carried off. And just a fun fact, I mean, it's not fun, but Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He had such a passion and a love for his city, but he was having to give them terrible news based on what they were doing. So book one is about prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem. And then there's a comfort and restoration part. You know, God doesn't just lay down the hammer. He comes back and he says to them, Someday you'll be able to come back. There'll be a remnant that comes back. Not everyone will be able to come back. Some of them will go out into the world known as the diaspora. But I will restore you to your land. I will restore you when you repent and come back to me. And then the third book is about oracles against the nation, that God has things to say against the rest of the nations. He starts with his people first, and then he moves on to the idolatry in the other nations. But he says some interesting things. He says, you know those other nations, even though they worship false gods, they are more faithful to their idolatrous gods than Judah is to the one true God. And he kind of kind of tells them and condemns them, but also brings to light their unfaithfulness. And then book four, there is a historical kind of uh, appendix. It talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, that everything happens according to God's plan. He prophesies it, the Jeremiah gives it to him, and um, that's how it happens. Now in Jeremiah chapter 31 is where we're going to plant a little bit here. It talks a little bit about how God is going to do something different. So up until this time, they have the Mosaic Covenant, they have Davidic Covenant, they have Abrahamic Covenant, they have covenants with God. And essentially, God is saying, hey, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to write my covenant on your hearts someday. That's what we're going to get here. And this was a new covenant. So they couldn't follow God's law. They weren't able to stay in the land because of their unfaithfulness. But God also told them that someday, 
a king from a line of David would be there to help them. But now he's talking about something new. It says in Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, verse 31, if you've got a Bible app or you can look on the big screen, um, or if you've got a Bible with you, you can follow along. So in verse 31, the Lord says this to Jeremiah, right in the midst of all the challenges. Look, the days are coming, the Lord declares, when I will make a new covenant on the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. God says, there's going to be something new. You, you have everything that you need, or at least you thought that you needed. But I have to do something new. <clears throat> this one will not be like the covenant I made with them uh, and their ancestors. The day I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I'm their master. God's like, I already made a covenant with you. You did not keep your part of the bargain. That's why you're in the predicament that you're in, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord uh, Lord's declaration. I'll put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. This is the Lord's declaration. So this was kind of a new thing. This was a new thing. And what's interesting about this is this wouldn't happen for a very, very long time. You know, as you go through the prophets, and maybe Jeremiah saw this coming, and maybe he didn't quite understand everything that he was talking about, but this new covenant would not come about until the time of Jesus. So the major prophets, all the stuff happens there, and then the minor prophets, and there's just about 400 years of silence before the time of Jesus. And the Old Testament ends with the only Italian guy in the Bible, Malachi. It's not Malachi, it's Malachi. Just kidding. It's a terrible joke. I know. That's why my kids don't even laugh at my jokes. I try them on you guys first, and then I'm like, well, those people laugh. My son will laugh. No, doesn't do it. So thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. Thank you. So it ends with Malachi. It talks about the coming Christ. And then, you know, in this season in November, we're looking forward. We're looking back to the Old Testaments and the coming of this Messiah. And then December comes, and the Messiah is here, and then he grows up. And then he sits in an upper room the week he's about to be killed. And with his disciples, he goes through the motions of what they thought was one thing, which ended up being something very different. He takes what they think is the covenantal bread and the juice for one purpose, to celebrate the exodus from Egypt, and Jesus says, no. The new covenant that was talked about in Jeremiah, I'm giving that to you today. And finally, finally, hundreds of years later, the new covenant comes. And God writes his law on their hearts. And he, he promises to be with them through his Holy Spirit forever. And their relationship with God is changed forever. And then after that comes a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Paul is born in the right town. He's an, he's an Israelite. He's born in the right town. He's born in the right time. He's born in the right day. He's got intense training. He's, he's got a theological mind and an evangelistic spirit and he wrestles with this notion because Christianity starts to take off. Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, and like a rocket ship, Christianity starts to take off within his own backyard. And he is committed to this religion of the Jews. <clears throat> and then one day, and Paul has killed and put in prison Christian, one day Jesus appears to him in a vision. He's like, hey, this is awkward, but you're playing for the wrong team, Paul. And he converts Paul to Christianity. And now Paul becomes a Christian. And now Paul is torn between two worlds. Because Paul is an Israelite and a Jew first. 
But his allegiance is to a first century Jew who claims to be God incarnate. And he has to put those two things together. And here's why this is relevant in terms of talking with uh, our, our current context. You know, when I first started here, um, my, my 50th interview, I can't remember what it is. There were a lot of interviews. But I've been here five years in January, so four years, nine months, whatever that is, 10 years, 11 months. I can't do math. I went to Bible college. But it was in January. And um, I was sitting in this room, and I was going through a theological interview. You know, they ask, they, you should know what you're talking about if you're going to do, uh, do this stuff up here. So a bunch of people ask questions, and there's this person who asked this one question. Again, if you asked this question and you were in the interview, it's no offense to you. I, just, I didn't know what it meant at the time. So someone asked me, they said, hey, are you a proponent of replacement theology? And I was like, I don't think so, because I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what it is. And so I did some research afterwards, and it's this theological concept that basically the church, when Christianity was formed, the church became the new Israel. Is that it took the place. Now, I don't hold that view. I'm going to tell you why I don't hold that view in just a second. And the reason this is pertinent is as we watch national and inter international struggles between the nation of Israel and other nations, we ask this question, does God still care about those people? Does he care about the land? Does he care about that? And the Apostle Paul is really, really instructive and helpful in talking about this. In Romans 9, that, this one won't be up on the screen. I'm just going to read this real quick. In Romans 9, Paul talks about his love for Israel, but also his challenge with Israel. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. This is the Apostle Paul talking. My conscience testifies through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Some of you may have prayed something like that. Hey God, if it's within your power, let me pay the cost so my family members and friends can know you. For I, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off. They, the Israelites, verse 4, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came Christ, who is God over all, to be praised. Amen. So Paul's making a case that through the Israelites... Now, when you talk about Israel, you have to actually talk about it in one or multiplicity of ways, at least three ways. The first one is Israel was a person. So Jacob wrestles with God in the Old Testament. God changes his name to Israel, which means to struggle with God. And the descendants of Israel, the person, are known as Israelites. And sometimes people are, are called sons of Israel in the Bible. So it's a people group for one. The second way it's talking about is Israel is actually a physical place, is that God gave them land. It became the land of Israel. So it's actually a physical place. It's a people, and it, and it is a place. And then it's also talked about the people of the promise, that God promised through Abraham that the world would be blessed. And Israel is not only just a physical place and a people of the promise, it's not just people in a specific area, because as they were scattered throughout the world, Israel would hopefully come back, that God would bring them all back. So Paul knows some of this. He knows some of this. He doesn't know necessarily all the future stuff yet because some of it hadn't been written yet. But Paul is in anguish because at this point, he is struggling between two worlds. So he takes the gospel. And in, in Paul's words is that Christ was crucified. He is of first importance. Christ was crucified. He was resurrected. And now he lives. And we get to have a response to that by trusting in him. So Paul takes the gospel to Israel. And some of them 
become Messianic Jews. They believe that this one, one Jewish person, that Jesus is actually the Messiah, and they become completed Jews. And many of them reject him. And they say, nope, this isn't for us. And this was Paul's anguish. And then in chapter 11, he talks about the interaction between Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. Welcome to the club. It's a very large club. And Paul talks about the interaction between Israel and the rest of the world. And he uses this analogy of a tree. So in Romans chapter 11, he says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. God always has a love. And then you drop down to verse 11 and it says this, is Israel's rejection final? Of course not. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings rich riches for this world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? And now Paul is going to pick up this complex analogy that is found in the farming community. He's going to, maybe he heard this story that Jesus had talked about as well, is that Jesus, when he was about to be crucified, he gathers his disciples around him and he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you want to have life and if you want to abide in me, you must remain attached to the root. And the root is Christ. You know, the fun little fact here is if you were to go to uh, Israel to this day and you were to say the word Netzer, it would mean Nazareth. And that's where Jesus was born. He was the branch of Israel. He was the netzer. He was the branch. So this analogy extends even today. So Christ calls himself the vine, the root from which all the things get sustenance and life. And he tells his disciples, if you want life and fullness, you must be a part of me. But if you are not faithful to me, you will be cut off and you will be thrown into the fire. And Paul, maybe he knew this story or maybe just the Holy Spirit gives him this analogy. He kind of picks this up. And he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. I mean, Paul is saying the gospel is so good that I hope when Gentiles convert and are invited into the family of God, that the people who were considered the family of God, the Israelites will look at that and they will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean for life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits, and he starts talking about this analogy, are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So you got a root, you got the branches, and then you've got fruits. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, though a wild olive branch, which is kind of offensive. Has someone ever called you a wild olive branch? Man, super offensive. We're grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Do not boast that you are better than those branches. Now, when I read this, I was like, grafted in? Like, I read this many, many years ago. I was like, what does that mean exactly? You know, the olive tree was often used as a symbol for Jerusalem or for the nation of Israel. In fact, one of the times Jesus and his disciples are walking along and he sees an olive tree from afar. And from afar, it looks like it's in season. It's the season for olives to bear fruit. And Jesus from afar looks 
at the olive tree. And as he gets up close, he realizes there's no fruit on this bush. And Jesus curses the fruit tree immediately. You're like, wow, it's a little dramatic. Jesus is hangry, man, you know? And he also talks about it as a metaphor for Jerusalem, is that as you walked up to Jerusalem in Jesus's day, Jerusalem looked like a city that was dedicated to God, that for appearance's sake, as you were miles away and you saw a bustling city, you're like, man, that's the place where God and his people resign. And then you got inside the city walls and you got close, you realize the city was corrupt. And Jesus uses that analogy of the olive tree to curse Israel and to curse Jerusalem. But in this sense, it also talks about ingrafting. Now, I didn't know this, but apparently you can do this, is that you can actually cut off a branch of a tree and you can cut off a branch of a different tree, a different species. And you can put it in that tree, and there's a special taping method and, and cuts you can make, and that will ingraft itself and grow into that tree and grow separate fruit because it is attached to the root of that tree. It's a crazy thing. You should look it up when you get home. So Paul talks about this process, which is apparently a common process at that time. He says, but if you do boast, do not, uh, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. You're not part of this tree. God grafted you in. Then you might say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul's basically like, yeah, there were people who are unfaithful, large people groups, and God cut them off to put you in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand by faith. Therefore, do not be arrogant. Beware, because if God did not despair the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in their unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated tree, how much more would these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So this is a bit of a complex way of talking about the future nation, the future family of God. Paul's making this appeal to the Gentiles first because this letter was written to the Romans, but they had a multiplicity of religions there. There were probably Jews stationed there. And Paul's point is a simple one. He's essentially saying God has not forgotten his people, but there's a key in here. There's a key to how he hasn't forgotten and why the Gentiles were included. So Paul uses this analogy of an olive tree, which represents Israel. He has cut off, meaning God has cut off some of those branches because they were unfaithful to him. Paul takes the gospel to the Gentile world. The Gentile world accepts, or at least some of them do the gospel. They're grafted into the olive tree and they become part of God's family. Now, how does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with the nation of Israel? What does this have to do with you as an American? Those are great questions. Thank you for asking. We're going to get to those in a second. So here's the point I want to make behind this. You know, the future of the nation of Israel, just like any other nation, is based on their faithfulness to God, their faithfulness to God. So when a conflict with Israel comes up, we tend to focus on, maybe not, maybe not you, maybe not me, but I've heard uh, talks, especially in America, is that the land is the most important thing. And it's not. The most important thing that God says over and over and over again is faithfulness to him. Amen. Faithfulness to him. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. 
And the second point is this, is that our nation, the United States of America, the place that we live currently, our nation has the opportunity to be a part of God's family tree if we abide in Jesus. You know, my, my son is into Pokemon cards, which means he has a very expensive hobby, and if he could send money, that'd be super helpful. His cards are expensive. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, those cards are expensive, though. So he, he enjoys Pokemon. He's kind of into that. And uh, him and I, the other day, I go to this card store, and we talk with this guy every once in a while. And every once in a while, the conversation will never really lead to, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. You know, they do this. I'm like, what does that mean exactly? You know, I don't know. So we're talking there, and the guy's like, and this is, these are his words. And uh, he said, man, you know, as I look at you know, what's going on in the world. I just realized that this, the world needs Jesus. You know, I was like, yeah, totally. He's like, as I look at the conflict between Israel and Palestine, you know, there's a lot of history there. He's like, but man, there's been so many world wars. And if this plunges us into another one, like it's not going to solve anything. I was like, I think you're right. Keep going. You know, and then he goes, you know, as I look at our own, you know, nation, again, I'm just standing there kind of listening He's just like, you know, we say God bless America, and, and maybe we should say God bless everybody. I was like, preach it, brother. You know, it was really good. And he's like, do you want to come up on Sunday and give the message? You're doing a great job. And so he taught, but he also talks about the lament. He said, it seems like, these are his words, it seems like as I watch Americans and as I watch our nation, we're falling away from God. And I was like, you could be right in certain senses. And then my point behind telling you this story is this, this isn't something that just is in the history books and in the Bible. Like people, when we look at how much the world and our nation needs God, like it, it starts to envelop how we think. We look past our family, we look past our job, we look past our neighborhood, and we get, hopefully, beneficially, a larger view of all humanity and our nation. And this is important because it, it, it does influence you. You live in the United States of America and it's a great country. But realizing what your allegiance is to is very important, you know, because it depends on who you vote for. It depends on what laws are made. It depends on if you're going to be, have more of allegiance to the United States or to God. It depends on your conversations with your relatives and people, because doesn't, politics is just super uniting, you know, <laughs> super uniting. And it's going to happen as you go to Thanksgiving meal. People's going to be like, you're going to be right in the yams. And someone's going to be like, who are you voting for next November? And you'd be like, I got to go to the bathroom permanently. You know, <laughs> I'm not coming back. So it, it clearly is something that people think about and they look about, not just every four years, but it's a big, big deal. So how, how should you do something about this? There's very little you can do, but I wanted to give you three suggestions here. Three suggestions. We've talked about the nations. I wanted to give you some practical tools, what I hope, hope would be helpful. Three things for you to do. The first one is this. Is thank God this week in your prayers that you were grafted in. Paul makes it very clear that this was an unnatural process. That God had picked Israel, the people of Israel, to be his chosen people. And they dropped the mantle of following God. And it wasn't like he had a plan B. This was always his plan. But the idea that God could have just chosen a people and excluded everyone else is a very real possibility. Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive of everybody and it's exclusive that only one person you can find hope in. And that's Jesus. And that's it. And maybe this week is just in your prayer life rather than asking God for something. Maybe the best thing you can do is just to say thank you. God, thank you for ingrafting me. And maybe that's a weird word. Like, God, thank you for being the root. 
all my life. And the analogy is such a great one. Because if you cut a branch off, and lots of us are doing that because it's the fall, right? And we're trying to get people to, like, get our leaves together. I'm trying to pay neighbor's kids. and oh, it doesn't work. So I got to have to go out there. But we realize when the branches are cut off and they fall, they die. And Jesus and Paul both make that similar analogy. If you are attached to the root that is Christ, you will live and you will bear fruit. The second thing you could do is think of yourself as an ambassador for Christ rather than a Christian. Only one of these, only one of these two, actually has a movement. Meaning you can label yourself as a Christian and do nothing. That's the, that's the bad side about labels, is that most of the time when someone accomplishes something and they consider themselves that thing, it's almost like you don't have to do anything afterwards. And it's a challenge for Christians to say, I've followed Christ, I'm good. But an ambassador is someone who has to actually go out to other people and represent you know, we think about it in national terms. You might have a U.S. ambassador. You may have an Israelite ambassador. You have a Mexico ambassador. Their job is to not only look at the interests of their own nation, but try to rep- represent them well to another nation and come to terms with how to get along. You know, the Apostle Paul would make this abundantly clear when he would say, your citizenship is in heaven. You are a citizen of God's kingdom before you are a citizen of the United States. And you must never get those two reversed. Never. And so maybe part of the thing that you should do is rather than considering yourself a Christian, or if you are considering becoming one, is consider what your job will be. You should be an ambassador. That's the language that Paul uses. And for you, that may be an ambassador to your immediate family. It may be to your neighbors. It may be to your coworkers. But you should consider your citizenship in heaven above all else. Because I guarantee you, all your coworkers don't know Jesus. Neither do all of your neighbors. Neither do all of your family members. Neither do all the people across the street from you. Your job is to be an ambassador. And the third one I tried to make a little bit fun, and it's this, is that pray for and research a nation other than your own. You know, occasionally at my house, I try to think I can cook, and I intentionally look at a dish from another nation or another culture, and I bring it home, and I cook it, and my family kind of gets through it, and they're like, oh, that's really good. And then I hear them in their rooms, they're just like, do you have any chips, you know? (laughs) Because it's bad. So I appreciate that. But I like looking at other cultures and stuff like that. You know, we're often proud to be an American, and we often know our own history, but maybe the part of the the way you can get a better worldview is you can look at these other nations. Maybe you look into Israel and Palestine. Maybe research why they have conflict at the beginning. Or maybe you look at, you know, your own nation. Maybe you come from somewhere else and you have a history there. My encouragement to you is to research another nation and realize that nation will be represented in God's kingdom for all eternity, not just ours. And maybe you can talk about it this week. All right, so I have a, had a clock, and I went, it's only 13 minutes over, not bad. So, so let me pray for us. I'll tell you a little bit about next week, and we'll be finished. Father, thank you so much, even for technological uh, challenges. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, center stage is you, Jesus. And as corny as that sounds, you know, we just hope that even in our lives as we go home, is that everything and everyone in our household looks to you. Lord, just, just help those in this room who do not yet see you as King and Lord, um, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we might as well, starting now, consider that, that you will be ultimate rule over everything and that we'll be glad to be under your leadership. Lord, help us be ambassadors to everyone around us. 
Our faith may be personal, but it is not private. And I pray that you help us reach the people through prayer, through activity, through just dialogue, through example, that we think of ourselves as ambassadors to our family members, our kids, our parents, our neighbors, people at church, and people of even different religions. And Lord, help us understand that your ultimate goal will be to represent in every nation, every tribe, and every tongue in your kingdom for all eternity. Help us think about that even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Sorry I went uh, over. I have an excuse. There was no clock up there. Next week, we're going to talk about the future temple. Where and how will you worship later on? I hope you'll come back for that. Have a great Sunday. You're already blessed in Christ. Thanks for being here. Thank you.